When you meet someone for the first time, or you're trying to introduce someone to your friend, what do you include in the introduction? A name? Yeah, name's really helpful, right? And uh, I'll give you a little trick. I'm just, most of you know that I'm not super good with names, and you're very forgiving when I ask you your name for the third time eventually it clicks. That's because I know you're probably not as good at names as I am. But anyway, that, that's another issue. But the name's really important because the name has to do with the, you connect that with the identity of the person, right? What other details would you include in the introduction if you're going to introduce someone? This is my friend, that personal connection, that's good. And, you know, if you are friends, that's legitimate. Or if it's another, you explain the, the connection. This is my friend, my neighbor. You might not say this is my bitter enemy. You might say this is someone I know, or this is so-and-so, or this person is a so-and-so. I don't know what you say, but anyway, here, here's this person, okay? So you, there's a name and a personal connection. What else might you include in an introduction? Where they're from, right? What they do. You would probably include in, in the introduction, if you're trying to connect with people, you say, oh, this person drives truck too, or this person's from, originally from British Columbia as well as you, or there's some kind of a connection. If you're doing, trying to do a good job and you really want to connect person A with person B, you think, what, where's the commonality? Where are the potential points of connection, right? Because you want to make the introduction relevant. Now, there's a method to my madness this morning, because I want you to think about introductions. For the next few weeks, we're going to look at the introduction that, of Jesus Christ that the Apostle John writes in the first few verses of the Gospel of John. It's very different from the other Gospels. It's really intriguing how God uses four different individuals with four perspectives on Jesus. The same person, same events, but they all have their different perspectives. Imagine standing four individuals standing on four different corners at an intersection and observing a car accident in that intersection. Everyone would have a different perspective of the same event, right? And that's kind of what we have in the four Gospels. It's really interesting watching, watching the difference. Matthew, he's a bean counter. He is an accountant. He's into details, and he's writing primarily for a Jewish audience. So if you look at the book of Matthew, he starts right away with, okay, this is where Jesus was related to, and he places him into a Jewish context, which makes sense because it establishes audience. Mark, not a big introduction, because Mark was dictated by Peter to John Mark, and it's kind of Peter's story. Peter wasn't much on details, so just wanted to get right into it. Okay, here's a story about Jesus. Let's go. And then Luke is a doctor. He's writing for a Greek audience, and he, he kind of eases his way into it and explains, writing for his audience, and he tries to put Jesus into the connection with kind of Roman history at the time and, and seeking connections, but it's also an introduction to the story about Jesus. John, his gospel was the, the latest of the four to be written, and when he starts, very almost mysterious. 
very philosophical, almost mystical. And you're left scratching your head a little bit. I was scratching my head a little bit this week going through the book of John. But it, it, it's fascinating, and, and there's a very good reason for why he introduces Jesus this way. Um, he starts off his introduction to, G, to uh, the story about Jesus this way. In the beginning was the Word. Now, where have you seen those three words before? In the beginning. In Genesis, right? In the beginning. Ah, so this is kind of a creation story. There's a study, there's a discipline called cosmology, which is kind of a study of how the universe came to be, how it's developing and evolving, and eventually how it's going to end up. It's a story, it's kind of a study of the origin and eventual fate of our universe. And this is kind of John's, this is one of the few cosmologies contained in the New Testament. And John starts with this cosmology saying, in the beginning was the word. It's fascinating to see when we unpack it, and I was doing a little bit of research in the original language. By the way, I'm, I'm really fascinated, I hope this doesn't, no, I just won't offend anybody, but I, I'm really curious here. How many people gathered here today, English is not the language that you grew up with. English is not the language that your parents taught you. You just go up your hand. How many people, English is not the Okay, everybody who learned English as a kid, I want you to do something. Give these folks an applause. You have my admiration. Because it's a tough language even for people who grew up speaking it. Some of us never mastered it really well. I just admire that. And there's a reason that it's really important when we study documents to get into the original language, what was it written? Now, the Bible translations we have are reliable and authoritative. I'm not casting doubt in them. But if you're a non-English speaker, you'll understand very well that some things don't always translate super literally into other languages, right? There's especially idioms and expressions, and everyone's got different verb tenses, and I'm not going to bore you with all the details of, of Greek grammar this morning, but it's significant. Because in the first few verses of John, it's really interesting to see how the original language communicates the truth about Jesus. In the beginning was the word. Probably the literal translation of this phrase would go like this. When the beginning began, the word was already there. Now imagine if John had written that, people would really be scratching their heads. Well, let's talk about that. When the beginning began, the word was already there. That's what the Greek literally means. What do we pull out of this word that John is talking about? Remember, he's telling the story about Jesus. He's using the word, word to describe Jesus. He was already there. Now, some of you may not be super impressed with that, but think about that. That is cosmic implications. This Jesus about, this Jesus that we call our friend, this Jesus that we pray to, this Jesus who is a human being, like we were, like we are. He was already there before everything began, before the beginning began, the beginning of everything that we see, the beginning of the cosmos, the universe, everything. 
He was already there. Oh, go home and think about that until your head hurts. Jesus was already there when the beginning began. That's amazing. Well, John continued. You just, just leave it there. The Word was with God. This Word was with God. And literally, the Greek means, and the Word was face to face with God. That preposition with literally means being face to face. So, we understand out of that that the Word is separate and distinct from God, a separate personality, a separate person, yet with God. It implies equality and a distinct identity, personality and coexistence with God. The fellowship between this word, the Greek word is logos, logos, and God himself. So they're equal and coexistent. And then, the final phrase of this opening sentence, and the word was God. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Three separate statements about the Word. And the Greek grammar clearly indicates that the Word was not a God. There will be some well-intentioned people come knocking at your door with a different version of the Gospel. And their version of the Bible will say, Jesus is a God. And they'll turn you to their version of John, chapter 1, verse 1, and say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. And bad Greek translation. It's not only bad translation, it's intentionally misleading because it makes Jesus a God. Small g, generic deity. Personally, I'm not interested in following a small g, minor deity. If I'm going to follow God, I'm going to go big or go home. I want the real deal. And the original documents in Greek say that the Word was God. Jesus is God. I can't beat that to death often enough. We need to get it through our heads that Jesus is God. He claimed to be God. Why do people try to kill him in theological discussions? You know, because he voted for the wrong political party? No, he was they thought he was blaspheming. He was openly claiming to be God. And the people who read the Gospels and say, wow, Jesus was just a nice teacher, he was a nice man, he was a good philosophy, and good ideas, they don't get it. They're not getting the truth about Jesus. Jesus said he was God. And that's what John is saying in his opening uh, prologue to his Gospel, his long and lengthy, somewhat philosophical and interesting uh, introduction to his gospel. He's saying this. He was with God in the beginning. He kind of repeats it again. And here are the implications. This is what he says about the Word. The Word existed before creation. The Word is equal to and distinct from God. The Word was and is got to get it into our heads. As, Jesus, as John is making his introduction, he's trying to introduce us to Jesus. And he's starting with the big picture. He's not starting with Jesus as, uh, uh, with his Jewish heritage. That's important. 
He's not starting like Peter started his gospel and said, hey, here's the story about Jesus and bang, get right into it. He's not starting like Luke did, introducing to his Greek audience, okay, here's the truth about this fellow Jesus who grew up in Palestine, and here's where he fits into Roman history, et cetera, et cetera. God's saying, John is saying, right off the top, here's Jesus. He made everything. He's God. Whoa, pay attention. Now, I can't, I can't emphasize this enough. It, it may sound absolutely basic, but you would be surprised at how many false cults and religions go right off, veer way away from the truth, and miss these basic, basic principles that Jesus made everything that is God. Okay? Let's continue and see what else we can find in John's introduction. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So the Word existed before creation, is equal to and distinct from God. The Word was and is God, and the Word created everything. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Now let's just take a step back here and say, why is Jesus described as the Word? Why does, why does um, John use this kind of, of language? The Greek word, this translated word in this passage is logos, as I told you before. It's common in both Greek philosophy and Jewish thought of the day. So John didn't write his gospel primarily for a 21st century Canadian audience. I hope you don't get offended. <laughs> Life is all about me. Why didn't John write it to me? Well, yes, it applies to us. I mean, but, uh, and again, for those of you who are not, did not grow up learning English from your parents, your parents do, you'll understand the challenge of translating something from one language and culture to another, right? You get that. And hopefully the rest of the native born communities will also understand that. So we need to unpack it. Why does John call Jesus the Word? And we know he's, Jesus is the Word. If you read a little bit more, here's a spoiler alert. Jesus is the Word in the story. Okay? If you read a little bit further in John, I think it's uh, verse 14 in chapter 1, it describes Jesus as the Word. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we go, ah, we're talking about Jesus. But here's why John introduces Jesus as the Word. Jewish thought, the word of the Lord had, the word of God had a lot of significance. When the word of God came to somebody, it was like God's message. God, it, and it's meant to be God's kind of personification. Like, put this in action. The word of the Lord comes to so-and-so, some prophet, and he speaks it, and this is, this is what God wants to happen. So it's God's, Jewish readers would say, ah, the word, okay, God's going to say something, and he wants us to do something, wants us to respond. So they would see the word as God's message, which makes sense. So John's writing to a Jewish audience, but he's also writing to a Greek audience. And in Greek philosophy, um, they would understand that um, the logos is um, thought, rational thought, and um, it was used to describe the agency by which God created material things and communicated with. 
So in the Greek worldview, Logos is thought as kind of a bridge between a God who's transcendent over everything and everything else in the universe. Therefore, so to Greek readers, the use of the term Logos would likely bring forth the idea that there's a, there's a, a principle, kind of a bridge between God and the world. So, which is very true, because Jesus, in a sense, was a bridge between God and the world. Except God built the bridge. God was the bridge. So, for Greek readers and Jewish readers, they'd be kind of intrigued and scratching their head and thinking, okay, now you've got my attention. Reading the introduction of this book, this word, person, must be pretty important. So that's why John uses that. It, it, I know it sounds a little bit but, but when you think about it, you think of how wise the Holy Spirit was when he inspired John to use a term that would apply to a Greek audience and a Jewish audience at the same time. It's pretty cool. I think it's pretty neat. I think it's brilliant. Um, the Apostle Paul writes later on, you know, both the Greeks and Jews had trouble with the message of Jesus, especially the message of the cross. It was a stumbling block to the Jews. It was offensive. And the Greeks just thought it was plain foolish. Um, but Paul says, nevertheless, the message of God, and that's important for our salvation, it's absolutely important. So it doesn't matter if it offends some people or it seems absolutely foolish. This is the good news that we're trying to portray. So the word is Jesus. The word is God's message, his ultimate message for us. Person. And we're going to unpack that a little bit more in subsequent weeks, but I want you just to sit with this. That the Word, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word is Jesus. He existed before creation, is equal to and distinct from God, He was and is God, and He created everything. But it doesn't stop there. He's not just some impassionate, ultimate force out there in the universe. In him was life, and that life was the light of mankind. If there's anything good in the world, if there's anything worthwhile, if there's anything positive or valuable, or anything that's going to last, or anything that just absolutely gives life to us, I don't care um, where, what you look for in life that energizes you or gives you life. If you go back far enough, you see somewhere Jesus is at the root of it all. Because he is the creator and sustainer of all things. He gives human beings creativity. You know, last night, uh, Lou and I went to a really fun uh, Irish music concert. West End Cultural Theater at Cultural Center. It's the old Elam Chapel. As you're going in, I said to my friend, hey, welcome to Elam Chapel. <laughs> but it was it was great music. It was great. I love that. It just makes me feel alive. Where does that creativity from music come from? Now, I don't know if any of those performers would profess to be followers of Jesus. In, in one sense, it really doesn't I mean, I hope for their sake they are. But I 
far enough back in their history, the fact that they're created in the image of God, that, that creativity and love for music and beauty and rhythm and melody and all that stuff, that's because that spontaneity and creativity and beauty comes from the Creator. So Jesus is really at the root of anything that's good and positive and valuable and wonderful. So he was, it says that in him was life, and that life was the life of men. So we talk about that, the general, what we saw as God's general revelation, God's general goodness on mankind, positive things. But more specifically, in him was life, in him was spiritual life. When Jesus offers us spiritual life, many of us go back and we think of our what we call our BC days, or before Christ days, or days before Jesus. We remember how dark things were and how hard it was to figure things out. And why are we here? And where am I going? And where have I come from? All these sudden, we are born again. I had a guy down the street ask me this week, trying to figure out Elam Chapel, putting it on the peg of things. Are you one of those born again churches? And I go, well, yeah. You know, I don't know what that term means to you, but I know what it means to me. When we become born again, when we wake up spiritually, and it's like, we see everything with new eyes. Watch newborn baby, you know, start trying new things with a bright little eye. You know, it, that's kind of what it is for us, right? Before we're born again. Jesus brings us spiritual life. Not just the general positive things in life that we enjoy in our culture, like art and beauty and music and human relationships. Those are all great. But ultimately, Jesus brings us spiritual life. And that's what John was trying to convey when he said, in him was life. And that life was the light of men. I don't care how dark your circumstances are in life. And life can get pretty dark sometimes. It can be really confusing and chaotic and seemingly like, does anybody know what's going on here? Is anybody in charge of the universe? It seems so random and chaotic and bad things happen. And unpredictable things happen, and tragedy happens, and you wonder, what the difference is going on? Like, who's in charge here? But in spite of that, Jesus brings life, and that life brings us light. Brings us light. And all of a sudden, we see, ah, now I get it. We just get a little glimpse things kind of fitting all together. It's not, it, it's enough of a light to guide us on to the next step in our existence and what we're supposed to be doing. So Jesus brings us life, and that life is the light of mankind. It, it lights us up. So the word that John's talking about existed before creation, equal to and distinct from God. The word was and is God. The word created everything, and the word is the source of life for all mankind. Not just a 
segment of the population, but for all men. That life was the light of all mankind. Now, this is important because we cannot overlook this. This is not just some kind of Western religion or North American idea. Just the variety of folks that we have here this morning in the chapel would put that assumption, you know, in the garbage bin, right? Because the gospel is for all mankind. And for those of us who think it's good news, we want to make sure that all mankind is in on this awesome experience, right? Right? Right.
Word made everything, right? And we know that in He was life, and that life is the light of men. There's something about the Word that's going to bring life and light to all mankind. Everyone. All mankind. There are no ethnic or socioeconomic groups excluded from the gospel. Therefore, we cannot write anyone off. As Christians, we can say, oh, they wouldn't be interested. Or, no, they, yeah, I don't think they're going to make it. Or, it's not for them. No. Because it says, all mankind. Right? And, as this light goes out, is the darkness going to win? That's where the cosmology comes in. The, the ultimate destination of the universe. Who wins in this story? Light or dark? Light, yeah. Which is really cool, which is John's way of saying Jesus wins. He's the ultimate winner. So the, this word that, that John is describing, Jesus, he existed before creation, he's equal to and distinct from God. He was and is God. He created everything. He's a source of life for all mankind, and he cannot be defeated by the dark. It does not matter what's going on in different parts of the world, no matter how horrific those things are, the light cannot be defeated by darkness. It cannot. And there may seem like times in our lives where all we can see is darkness, and we feel like the darkness is closing in on us, in our circumstances, by the way we process things. Sometimes when you get down so deep, it doesn't really matter if it's the way you process things or your circumstances, you're just so down in your head, you cannot see any light at all. But the word Jesus is not and will not ever be overcome by the darkness. So ultimately, he wins. Ultimately, he wins. And I want to give that word of encouragement to you as we go on and explain the gospel. This has been a little bit philosophical this morning. That's the way John intended to um, introduce his book. But in a way, it's not philosophical. It's really about a person. John is trying to introduce us to the person of Jesus. And he's, he's giving us, unlike some of the other gospel authors, he's giving us the big picture right away of who this word is. This word of God. God's message is in a person. Now, God's message is in a person. So I can introduce, I can introduce my friend Jesus. I can introduce him to Tom. And uh, well, actually, Tom already knows Jesus, but I can introduce uh, Jesus to uh, Myrna. Well, actually, Myrna already knows Jesus. That's good. Uh, I'll find someone to introduce Jesus. We can introduce him as a person guy, not a philosophy guy. This is not a list of principles to live by. Those are fine, those are good, but I want a person. I want a friend, um, a mentor, uh, a board, a boss, someone to guide me and tell me what to do. I want a person. And that's who Jesus is. 
John is introducing us to the person of Jesus. But he's giving us a huge macro picture to begin with. So when we start learning about Jesus and who he is, we need to remember that he's the word of God. He is God. He made everything. Um, and his, his, what he offers us is life for all of mankind. He will never be defeated by the darkness that we experience on the planet Earth. Just keep that in mind. I'm going to pray for us now. I know this has been a little bit maybe theological, a little bit theoretical, but I am so passionate that we understand this and live up the implications of this. When you come back, Lord willing, next week, we're going to explore a little bit more of the implications of this word to him as human beings and what that looks like for us. And then the following week, we're going to learn how we can start living out the implications of the gospel. Because it's not just enough to know the truth of the gospel. My passion is for us this fall that this gathering that we experience together, this church family, we will develop a gospel that gospel culture will be so transformative that we'll start seeing more change, continue to see change in us and change in other people because this light, this, this life that is in the Word is the light of all mankind and we will see that happen. So let's pray. Father, this is heady stuff. This is cosmic stuff. Thank you for the cosmology gospel, explaining where the universe is going, where it came from. This is heady stuff, but I pray that you'd help us remember it tomorrow when we're at work or at school or at home thinking about you. Will you be present with us? Will you be present? And especially remember that darkness cannot win. The darkness in our lives cannot win. That you ultimately win. Thank you for inviting us into this gospel, thank you for becoming one of us. But Lord, I pray that you help us get the gospel in our hearts and our heads. And I pray that you would help us allow the gospel to transform us. Transform us as a community, united by Jesus, who is the creator and sustainer of everything. We worship you.